Hello there, Dr. Neil Buttery here, food historian and chef, and welcome to the British Food History Podcast. Today I'm talking to historian of the Middle Ages, Danielle Sobolski, about medieval meals and manners. Excuse my croaky throat and my sniffles. I've got a cold, so there's going to be no messing about this week. We're going to go straight in. I'll leave any news for after today's conversation. The only thing I will say, because I pretty much say it at the beginning of every episode, is I do want to hear from you all for the postbag edition of the podcast, which will come at the end of the season. So if this episode fires off any comments, questions or queries, email me, neil at britishfoodhistory.com or leave a comment beneath a post on social media or send me a DM. I'm on Twitter and Blue Sky at Neil Buttery and Instagram and threads as Dr. That's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Or, of course, you could go and place a post on the British Food History Facebook discussion page, which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. Okay. Danielle Sobowski is also known as a five-minute medievalist. She's a podcaster. I highly recommend her podcast called The Medieval Podcast. I encourage you all to check it out if you haven't done already. And she's the author of several books. And her new book is called Chivalry and Courtesy, Medieval Manners for a Modern World. And it's published by Abbeville Press. And I was very pleased to see that a good deal of the book is about dining, eating and feasting. Eating was a very social activity in the Middle Ages, of course. So it was important you behaved appropriately. I spoke to Danielle back in December 2023. We talked about table manners the importance of sharing and cleanliness, carving terminology, turkey legs, and the pressures put on the person organising and overseeing all the feasts and the meals, the lady of the house, amongst many other things. There are four Easter eggs associated with today's episode, but I'll tell you about those at the end too. But now, Medieval Meals and Manners with Danielle Sobolski. Hello, Danielle. Thank you very much for coming on the British Food History Podcast. It is my pleasure. It's always great to talk to you, Neil. Oh, it's great talking to you. We worked together ages ago. It was lockdown one, wasn't it? Lockdown yes. part one. <laughs> it was I ages thought ago. of it in those terms, but yeah, lockdown part one. Yeah. We worked on the Medieval Masterclass for Creators and you did a fantastic bunch of video for people to tell them all about food. It was amazing. And I learned a lot from you. So that was awesome. It was fun to put that together. Came just at, right, at the right time as well. <laughs> we yep. were all stuck at home. Yes, doing lots of cauldron cooking and things like that. It was good fun. But anyway, not here to talk about me. <laughs> we're here to talk about your wonderful, wonderful book, Chivalry and Courtesy, Medieval Manners for a Modern World, which I'm very pleased to see lots of food appearing in. Yes, definitely. I don't, I don't think you can talk about manners without talking about food. I think it's probably the most important one. I mean, everybody eats. Maybe yeah. not everyone's hanging around with knights and kings and queens, but certainly everyone's eating and it's eating's always a social situation. 
Absolutely. You're always eating with other people. I mean, so much more in the Middle Ages than now, in part because of the way people are cooking and the way they're sharing, and in part because people don't have their screens to tune out when they're eating. So yeah, I think it's even more social back in the day. I'd like to ask about why you chose this topic, because it's one thing that's very interesting for me, but it's something, certainly it's hard to research, I think, you know, everyday behaviour especially surrounded by food, people don't think it's important enough to make a note of. Um, mm. So I was wondering why, why you chose this as a subject, bearing in mind it's social history and therefore just makes it that little more tricky to pin down. Yeah, well, after writing How to Live Like a Monk, that book did very well in terms of how well books can do. So that was really mm. lovely. And so the publisher and I were thinking, like, is there anything else we could do sort of along these lines that brings together modern stuff and and history as well? And so this was another idea that the editor at Abbeville had and said, would you like to do this? And of course, it's so exciting to look at social manners and things like that. But you're right. It's very hard to find them. You have to mm. find the right sources that will tell you that stuff because much of it is just the type of stuff that people will pass on to each other when they're sitting at the table and somebody will make a gentle correction or something like this is how you hold your spoon or make sure you're not, you know, wiping your face on your sleeve, that kind of stuff. So it doesn't often get written down. So that can be tricky, but it's also really fun when you find it, especially the way that medieval writers write about things like this, where it's not usually sugar-coated. <laughs> it's usually in verse, but it's usually like, this is definitely not what you do because it makes you look rude and terrible and only terrible people will do this. So it's it's really fun to work with this stuff. And your approach is very good. It's very accessible. Thank you. I think some people think that by making something accessible, you're trading off against, I don't know, your, your rigor, rigor of research or the, or the amount you research or the amount of detail you're putting in. But um, mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. And I think your book is very much proof of that. I think I used to be a teacher, so I kind of think it's, it's important to be able to um, communicate to as many people as possible. And I think if you're talking about something that's obscure, <laughs> like mm -hmm. a... You know, the Middle, middle Ages are obscure to, to most people. If you can put things simply, it means you really understood it yourself. Yeah, well, I should, I should hope so. Anyway, I'm hoping I'm understanding this pretty well. But yeah, when I started writing as the Five Minute Medievalist and started doing that work for Medievalist.net after my blog, I always came at it not from the perspective that I was a writer, never thought of myself as a writer, but I did think of myself as a teacher. And I also taught in a classroom as well. Mm. And so I think of that in terms of trying to get at the people who have questions and are too scared to raise their hands, right? Because they don't want to look stupid. And so I always am aiming at people who have questions and they don't know what their entry point into the Middle Ages should be. So accessibility is the very core of my work. And I don't think that it means that you're cheating people of anything or that maybe you're you're not putting a good effort into it. I think that there are some of us that have skills that are better translated to speaking directly to the public. And some of us have skills that are better suited to the archives. And I say this a lot, but I really think it's a team effort when it comes to helping people learn about the Middle Ages. I would be useless in an archive, but I can speak to people. And so when I work with that research and bring it forward and 
make sure people know whose it is. I think that that team effort is what really helps people to understand the Middle Ages. So yeah, I'm a big fan of public history because I think it's the first point where you come across history. It's usually something fun or something light, and then you want to learn more about it. So I think it's really important to make sure that your work is accessible. Now, before we start talking about eating and food, just like to quickly ask you about the two main words anyway in the title of your book, chivalry and courtesy and what those words mean, because they've certainly changed their meaning. I think they're they're similar, but they're not the same. (laughs) Yeah, I think that courtesy is probably the closest one because when people are talking about courtesy in this type of source, it always has a meaning of politeness and good manners and the type of behavior that would elevate you. So it does have to do with courtliness, like the type of behavior that people in a court or people with good breeding would have. So that that's mm. pretty similar. But courtesy now, people talk about common courtesy, which is something that, you know, is not the same thing as in the Middle Ages because commoners not really thought to have the same amount of courtesy as in courtliness. And then chivalry has changed more in that when we talk about chivalry, it's almost always in gendered and romantic terms now. So when we talk about chivalry, like whether chivalry is dead, it's almost always in a gender binary and having Mm -hmm. to do with like dating and romance and stuff like that. And chivalry in the Middle Ages, it comes from cheval, so it comes from horse. So it is for knights and it is a a way for knights to behave and everyone of this knightly class as well but especially the whole cheval thing it it is a knightly thing that we're talking about and it doesn't just determine how you relate to ladies although that's part of it you're supposed Mm. to be defending ladies and treating them well and romancing them sometimes but also it's a way of behaving yourself well especially along Christian lines. So being charitable, being generous, being merciful, this is all to do with chivalry. So now we think of it more romantically. Back in the day, it was, it was more holistic in terms of behavior for knights, both on the battlefield and off the battlefield. That's very good. Succinct. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, you cover various elements of, of life in the book. I'm pleased to see that food or dining is represented in every chapter, actually. But you look at food and eating, I suppose, first. Mm. I mean, where do we begin? How about um, if you're a guest at a fairly fancy feast, what's it going to be like, do you think, walking into the Great Hall? And is there anything, what, what, what kind of things would you expect to see and what would you, you do as you get to your, your place at the table? Well, we are talking around holiday time and so... A good example of this would be if you've seen the Harry Potter movies and you see like the Christmas feast there, it would be laid out kind of like that. If it's a really big feast, you're going to have a top table that's on a raised platform and then everybody is going to be sort of perpendicular line to that. Mm -hmm. And everybody is sitting on benches and they're facing inward. So that's what you would see when you come in and you'd see a lot of tapestries hung up and garlands and a lot of flora that people are getting from a florist. This is something that we find in a book called The Good Men of Paris. A Good Wife's mm-hmm. Guide is the translation that I've read. So you'd see all of this beautiful stuff, tablecloths and dishware and, and all sorts of beautiful stuff. So when you first come in, you'd be washing your hands. And this is something that people don't expect when they mm-hmm. think of the Middle Ages, probably because nobody ever washes their hands in a medieval movie, like ever. <laughs> so no, indeed. There's that. <laughs> but there's always hand washing before eating. So when you come in, you're offered some 
water to wash your hands in. And it might have flower petals in it, but it's probably not going to have soap because soap is for baths. It's not for hand washing. So you'd wash your hands and then you'd be escorted to where you're going to sit. And then, yeah, you'd have a dining partner and you'd be sharing a dish with them and a cup with them, but you'd have your own spoon and your own knife. And uh, yeah, it would all be laid out beautifully on the tablecloth. Well, you've just basically described what I was getting at because it's a real chance to, well, first of all, have people feel welcome because that's very Mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. But it's also a chance to show off your wealth. Yeah. Reading between the lines, that's what it's all about, really, I suppose. And everything's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's clean, sweet smelling of herbs and flowers strewn on the floor and things like that, which I think is just such a... We should be doing more of that, I think, strew, strewing herbs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even down to the, the, the bowl that you're rinsing your hands in, washing your hands in, you know, it's not just some regular wooden bowl or something. You know, they've got yeah. these really beautiful, ornate sometimes um, look like bronze. I forgot, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember their names. I want to say persimmons, but that's not right. <laughs> Gamalians. Gamalians. That's I was nearly there with persimmons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gamalians. So those are like bowls that will have a little fancy spout and they will pour water from one, one bowl to another because it's a performance as well as being just a place to wash your hands. You have that flowing water. There are also aquamanils, which are jugs that are just for washing hands. That's where the word comes from, aqua for water and manil for hands. So these are, yeah, as you say, they're beautiful. And they're a way of showing off, like you say, but it's also, like you're also saying, it's a way of showing respect to your guest and really making them feel good. And then one of the things I think is important as we get into this is that Lots of people didn't have cash just hanging around in the Middle Ages. They would invest that in things that they could take with them. And these were things like spoons and gamelians and things like that. And you could trade them in if you needed ready cash or you could melt them down or things like that. But people put a lot of money into those things that other people could see. They were marks of status, but also just a nice way to decorate your home. So people are investing quite a lot in things like spoons and cups and plates and things like that. It's how I invest. I can't be trusted on eBay after three glasses (laughs) of wine, that's for sure. (laughs) You have a whole collection of silver spoons. But people are leaving them in wills because they're important. I'm sure you have ones that you'd want to leave in a will because (laughs) they're so important and special. (laughs) You do get attached to these things. You know, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're boring everyday things to everyone else but to you you know you, you covet them they have a lot of um yeah special memory attached to these things even if they're fairly lowly yeah absolutely everyone has their grandmother's dish that they remember something being served in back in the day and it just has a lot of memories attached or a recipe card with their handwriting on it that kind of stuff it's sentimental but i think that's another place where we can connect to the people of the middle ages no, I, I absolutely agree. We mentioned the tables too. Um, the tables are mm. arranged randomly. Where, how close you are to the main tables is quite important, isn't it? It's all to do with yeah. social rank. Yeah. So people would be sitting closer to the salt cellar if they were more important. Those people were sitting above the salt and people who were further from the salt cellar, they were less important. They'd be sitting below the salt. Mm-hmm. And these salt cellars are not just like a little shaker that you can buy down the street. The important ones would be just massive. And there's one that is at the Cloisters Museum in New York, and I've actually used it in two of my books because it's beautiful. It's made of rock crystal and gold, and it's got rubies and emeralds, just incredible. And it would sit really high on the table so everyone could see it. 
But if you were lesser, you would get a little salt cellar that was carved out of bread. <laughs> so, like you knew where you were in the Middle Ages. If you were a VIP, you would sit at the top table and face everybody. And if you were lesser, you'd be sitting near the back. And we say this. And it's kind of funny, but this is still how people arrange their wedding feasts too. Yeah, <laughs> like, it absolutely is, isn't it? Even down to the, the top table sometimes being slightly raised. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And the people who le- who know them less are seated by the door. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to say that, but everybody knows that's how it goes. And if it's a really big feast, say it's a Christmas feast, or there's maybe some wedding of two important houses, those tables are going outside the door and down. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And nobody wants to address that elephant in the room, but you know where you stand. (laughs) (laughs) Sharing's one of the most important things. I suppose it might be the one element that some people do or would find a little unsavory today. There's a bit of maybe oversharing of... (laughs) <laughs> of, of of foods you know i'm I'm thinking of um you know bowls and use of fingers rather more than we do today yeah although when we talk about people using their fingers we always forget that if you go out and you have a basket of chicken wings everybody is reaching into that basket with their fingers if you get chicken wings for the table so we still eat chicken with their fingers that's not a strange thing True. but yeah people are sharing a bowl they're sharing a plate or a trencher and they're sharing a cup. And these are things, especially in the post-COVID world, that we probably find a little gross. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there are rules that are set down in the Middle Ages that try and mitigate the grossness that could possibly happen because of this. So they're saying, like, wipe your mouth before you take a sip of wine because, you know, you don't leave oil on top of the wine or don't take a sip of wine if you have food in your mouth. I mean, this is something people are telling their kids still today, like, oh, don't do that. And then it's even more important when you're sharing a wine cup. But things that you see at medieval times, for example, where you're supposed to pick up your bowl and put it to your face and like slurp your soup that way. That's not how it was in the Middle Ages. In fact, it's supposed to be really gross to pick up a dish and put it Mm. to your face. You should be using your spoon. So maybe that gives us a little bit more of the distance that we need when it comes to sharing these plates and cups. Medieval people didn't have germ theory, so they didn't know that tiny little organisms were causing disease. They did know that if something was dirty, it could cause disease or it was just disgusting. So there are little rules that mitigate, you know, contaminating or contaminating more (laughs) the shared dishes. Yeah. No, no, that's it. In fact, if anything, it shows that in a list of priorities, sharing is more important. You know, that kind yes. of social event, which is something is something we've lost. And of course, it gets to the point that we're using knives and forks and nothing even touches it. I mean, when you get to the 18th century, people are peeling and eating oranges with a knife and fork without touching them with their fingers <laughs> at all. I mean, it's just nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. But yes, sharing is more important than like risking having a disgusting yeah. moment in your meal. Yeah. yeah, we all know what's gross. That hasn't changed. <laughs> human, humans have always been the same when it comes to things like that. You don't need germ theory to know that things are gross. Blow, yeah. Wiping noses on tablecloths and things, obviously. But, yes. but yet people think that's what people are doing at a medieval feast, you know, throwing food around, covered in grime and all that nonsense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Turkey legs. Turkey legs. <laughs> 
There's <laughs> always a turkey leg. There's always a turkey leg. Yeah. Here's a question for you. When did the Middle Ages end? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Um, we all decide for ourselves when it ends. And I choose uh, the Protestant Reformation as being the real mm. moment because I feel like so much of culture is bound with the way that religion is practiced in the Middle Ages and it's it's more uniform than it is after that break with the Catholic Church. So for me, that's a big cultural shift and that comes just after 1500. So I usually just draw the line at 1500 for neatness sake. Mm -hmm. So I usually pick from 500 to 1500. There are a few things that I think signal the end. There's the printing press. Once that really gets things going, then it changes culture. The Protestant Reformation changes culture. The way people are using gunpowder changes culture. But for me, I like to cut it off at around 1500 because I do think that that split mm. in religion changes everything. And mm. you got to pick a point to stop. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is um, it's Henry VIII who's the first monarch to eat turkey. Mm. So depending where depending where you stand, some people might be saying, actually, uh, actually Danielle. <laughs> of course. <laughs> there was a me medieval king who ate some turkey. <laughs> you, you can't be in this profession without somebody will actually you on the daily. But yeah, I cut it off before Henry VIII, so I'm safe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of the things that was quite important, especially for younger men, squires, to do was to serve other yeah. people mm -hmm. and sometimes to carve as mm -hmm. well um, those behaviors were important socially but but why was why was that what it's a bit of a strange concept just doing the serving because you think a waiter or a waitress is going to do that so <laughs> but actually it was quite important from, I think from the point of view of a social standing wasn't it as to who who and what you were serving yeah, and I think this comes down to manners again, because no matter how great the manners of your servants, it's, it would look strange to have your servants serving at the head table. So the king would be served by people of rank. And these are usually young men, as you're saying. Mm. But I mean, knighthood is service. It is service. It's meant to be service for God and for the Lord. So it's not a strange thing to have knights that are serving. But it's, yeah, it's young men. It's part of their training. They get to see manners up close. They get to show off their carving skills. Mm. And often the king is served and his food is carved by somebody really high status. So like a lord would be doing this for the king. So it is, again, it is a nice bit of service, like you're saying, that it's a nice connection. But it's also a little way of training uh, young men to have good manners and to witness good manners and to be in practice of serving people who are above them. So you know more about carving than I do. Tell us about carving. <laughs> well, yeah, it was a good opportunity to show off your knife skills, like you're saying, but in a more subtle and, you know, romantic way, fine, finer skills. There was a whole vocabulary built around carving. Each animal had its own adjective, so you didn't carve anything. If you carved a swan, it was called lifting the swan, for example. You winged a quail. And my two favourites is um, you dismember a heron. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh. <laughs> and you... And very nice. And, and you splat a pike. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you splat the pike. Mm. Okay. As somebody who does get nervous in social situations, I do try my best to think about what I would be like. 
in these, <laughs> in these situations. So when I'm dismembering that heron in front of the Lord or whatever, with all eyes on me, I mean, hands would be shaking or my hands would be shaking for sure. You know, it's high pressure stuff. And there's not a huge amount of big feasts and events that go on in the year. So there's very few opportunities to, to show off your skills. So you better not mess it up. Yeah, you don't want that little <laughs> bit of wing to slide off and get on the king's velvet. <laughs> you, know, you have to be careful. Yeah, which is why it's a high status thing. And as you say, you have to be good with knives. And I do want to emphasize that the knives people are using for carving and eating, they're not the same knives that you have, you know, in a sheath and you're going to use in battle. I think that's something you'd probably see a lot in movies. And there is a movie that I, I reference in the book. It's Outlaw King. And you have... Edward II, the future Edward II, who's eating, I think, an apple right off the tip of his knife. And no one would do that. Maybe in an army camp. Okay, but not the king's son. He wouldn't be eating off his knife. Nobody does that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have to make it look like they're uncouth because it's the Middle Ages, right? <laughs> exactly. Chaos. Yeah, chaos. Chaos the whole time. Chaos, rudeness <laughs> and food fights the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did you know? Maybe we should quickly talk about the most important person when it comes to these feasts and the logistics and the work behind it. And that's the lady of the house. Mm -hmm. She's the one with her sleeve rolled up, yeah. getting all this stuff done. Yeah. So if she's the lady of a, a big house, then she has a staff that's going to be doing this stuff for her. And usually the people who are cooking are men. So she's not usually the one who's out, like up to her elbows in flour, but she has to decide what is going to be served and when it's going to be served and how many people are invited and all of that stuff. So she has to juggle a huge amount of stuff. And I think one of the things I mentioned in the book that I think we need to remember is like without refrigeration, you have to plan very far in advance mm. to know what you need. It's not like you can just run to the store <laughs> and get something. Sometimes there are only things that you could get on a market day or you could only get when people have come into town with the right spices. Like you have to plan very far in advance. So there is a lot for a woman to do mm. to make sure that everything is good. And then beyond just the food, there's making sure you've gone to the florist or sent someone to the florist, making sure you have enough candles for everybody, making sure you have enough rushes, making sure you have enough dishes. Like there is a lot. What people might not realize either is that you can rent dishes and you can rent tablecloths and you can rent napkins if you need them. So there are people whose like profession is to rent out these napkins and stuff to you so that you don't have to have all this stuff. Because again, if we remember like a linen tablecloth is handmade, they're all handmade. Everything's handmade at this time. Mm -hmm. So you might not have the budget to have just stacks and stacks of linen. It's easier to rent it. So yeah, all, these are all the things that the lady of the house has in her head. And she's probably, if not the one, then certainly consulted on deciding who's going to sit where, which anybody who has planned a wedding knows is a, a big amount of work. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to balance tact and politics and, you know, space and all of these things at once. So yeah, it's a huge responsibility, even with a whole bunch of staff to help you to have all of that stuff in your head. Mm. And then sometimes you might have uh, an important person like the king might just drop by. He might be like, well, we're going to be there tomorrow. Make sure you have food for us. So I would not want to be one of these chatelaines back in the day because it's a lot to think about and a lot to remember. One person that, or one primary source that's very important is the Goodman 
of mm-hmm. Paris when it comes to I call him the man's the mansplainer of Paris. <laughs> Uh, I can never remember this. He's quite a few years older, isn't he, the Goodman of Paris? And he's married mm-hmm. someone who's maybe just mid-teens? Yeah, she's 15. Yeah, and it's, just, it's a book of um, do's and don'ts, I suppose. A, a self-help book. Yeah, it's it's a funny source because it's this man who, as you say, is much older. And so he's writing this to train his wife, but he's also writing it because he's expecting he's not going to outlive her. She's going to outlive him by a long time. So he's training her for her next husband as well, which in a way is seems very considerate. But then you get into the actual culture of the Middle Ages where he's saying, you know, bring me my slippers by the fire, that kind of stuff. But he, he expects her to know everything from the price of a side of beef to where you get it in Paris to like how many people would need this much of food or whatever to knowing how to get rid of fleas to like it's just a it's Mm. endless it's not really endless because it does have a conclusion to the book but like so much information that she's just meant to remember and expected to be able to tell this to the servants so like even if you have servants you need to know enough to do any of their jobs at any time. So it is, it's a lot for Mm. her to remember. And I think he thinks he's being sweet, (laughs) but (laughs) but yeah, it's not the type of thing that today's brides would be happy to get. I don't think. (laughs) No. No. Do you think she was able to express herself? I'm talking when it comes to, to dining and things. The reason I ask is when you are ticking into the 17th and 18th centuries, it's still quite medieval in its mm-hmm. setup, especially the, the relationships between the lady of the house and the servants. And it is rather more communal. It's not like Downton Abbey yet, where things are all very upstairs, downstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does come across, though, that in these self-help books, and cookery books, that they were there to help the woman ex- express herself Ultimately showing off, I suppose, how, how wealthy her husband is, of course. But um, she was definitely um, allowed, in, in, in inverted commas, to, to take the reins from that point of view. Do, do you think that was the case in Middle Ages? I would think so. I would think so, because if you're in charge of the menu, you're not necessarily going to serve something that you hate, right? <laughs> it could be dialing up or dialing down on the spices. Like, I like to have my pottage this way, or I'd like to have my swan this way. And so you'd have a stamp on it. And I think that it's probably something that happens naturally that reflects somebody's taste, hopefully their own, but probably their husband's as well. And then I think that having a sense of style is important to distinguish yourself from other people, because if two people are having a feast on the same day, like you want them to come to your house, you want to be known for having a good feast, for having the right kind of wine and things like that. And because they're doing things like ordering stuff from the florist, I think that is a place where you'd have a stamp, your personal stamp on it as well. Like I particularly like this flower, I like the smell of this one, or I like to decorate it in this way. So I think that even though this husband, this this good man, this manslayer is very, <laughs> um, what's the word I want? He's very explicit in what he wants. I think that naturally she's going to be expressing her own personality and his too, his tastes as well. But she will, her feasts that people are coming to are going to have a certain style, a certain flavor so that people will be able to to know this is her influence. And I mean, I think that this is one of the ways that women could express themselves in, in creative ways and in 
ways related to power. So mm. this is one of the outlets that a woman might have would be to express herself through style and through flavor. So yeah, I think I'd like to think that she had control over it, at least after a certain point. So it's time to wrap up. Yeah, I mean, there's so much more in this. I really love how much food and eating crops up throughout the book. Just It just goes to show how, how important it was. So it's, it's just lovely to see a book about food in the Middle <laughs> Ages, from my point of view, because even if it is something that you do know well, you know, a subject you do know well, it's always, you always get something from seeing it from another person's perspective, I think. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I layered it so that I put the food stuff first because it felt like as I was writing it, that's the basic level that everyone needs. And then this level, everyone needs food and this. And then the third chapter, everyone needs those last two things so that by the time you get to the royals, they have to know everything. But it starts with eating. Where can people find out more about you and the and the great work that you do? Oh, thank you. Um, you can find everything at daniellesabalski.com, but I know that's very hard to spell. <laughs> so you can find my podcast. My podcast is just called The Medieval Podcast, and I'm on social media at five, as in the digit, M-I-N, Medievalist. So you can find me in any of those places. And the book, Chivalry and Courtesy, is in all the major bookstores in the UK and in North America as well. Thank you very much, Danielle. Chivalry and Courtesy in Medieval Banners for a Modern World is out now and it's published by Abbeville Press. It's a very beautiful book. I've left links to Danielle's website as well as Abbeville Press's website so you can find out more about her book and all the other great things Danielle does. I've also left a link to a transcript of The Goodman of Paris, which of course we talked about in case you're wanting to have a look at this very important primary source. Alright, some quick news before I go. I popped up on BBC Radio 4's The Food Programme to talk about the ways bitter foods were consumed in Britain in the past. And the ideas behind what good ingesting bitterness or bitter foods did. It can be heard on BBC Sounds or as a podcast. I have left a link to the show notes. And this is something I forgot to mention last time. If you haven't already, it's time to listen to my Lent series of podcasts. It was season one of the podcast. I made it with Bina Katani and Sonda Radio back in 2020. And it charts the food traditions through Lent. The idea is you listen to the episodes each Sunday of Lent, starting the Sunday before Lent begins, in fact, with the episode about preparing for Lent. Check it out. It was a really good project to work on. Hey, thank you everybody for your continued support. And thanks for spreading the good word. This show is continuing to creep up the charts. And also thank you to everyone who's supported the blog and podcast financially by gifting me a virtual coffee or pint. And for those of you who've become one of my £3 monthly subscribers, there's four Easter eggs associated with today's episode. If you want to become a subscriber, or maybe just to give a virtual coffee or pint, please visit the website britishfoodhistory.com and go to the support, the blog and podcast tab. All right, Easter eggs. There's some good ones this week. I say that every week, don't I? The first one, Danielle and I talk about the weirdness of medieval logic. The second one is about entertainment at feasts, and we focus upon the subtlety course. Number three, trenches. And... Fourth, the problems associated with making generalizations 
when researching about the behaviour and habits of people from our past. Right, it's time to go. I'm overdue my Lemsip. Other disgusting medicated lemon flavoured drinks are available. Have a great week ahead and I shall see you soon for the next episode. In the meantime, please do take care. Cheerio.